welcome to the first edition of Well Spoken, Stevenson Harwood's podcast for the oil and gas industry. We've got a number of written publications uh, called Well Healed for LNG, Well Connected for EPSO and Well Informed, our daily news updates. With the current uh, social distancing, we thought we'd try a new medium of podcasts. And today we've got Tony Conker. Hello. Tony, do you want to introduce yourself? Tony Conker, partner at Stevenson Harwood for the past 18 odd years. Um, focused my practice on the oil and gas industry throughout that period. Um, have dealt with some pretty strange uh, periods and uh, circumstances throughout that time. And um, looks like we're another one now. And also on the line, we've got Simon Moore. Hi, Simon. Hi there. So I've been at Stevenson Hard for about 20 years now, specialising in offshore oil and gas and insurance. So today, uh, given the current circumstances, we're going to be talking about force majeure. So let, let's start with uh, something basic. So how and when is force majeure applicable in an oil and gas contract? Tony, do you want to kick off? Uh, yes, Mark. Well, the, the starting point with force majeure is that um, it's... Um, uh, an import from the, the civil system uh, and was introduced in English law by draftsmen who felt that the usual remedies offered by the doctrine of frustration uh, were either not wide enough or sufficient enough to cover the circumstances that uh, they wanted to have as contingencies within the contract. So therefore, they started to insert force majeure clauses into them. And, and so far as I'm aware, it's almost always the case that you'll find a force majeure clause in any kind of contract in the oil and gas industry these days. However, what's important to note is that the force majeure principles, which we're just about to discuss, will not apply if there isn't expressly a force majeure clause within the contract that you're looking at. And if there isn't such a clause, then you have to start looking at the doctrine of frustration which is an entirely different subject, which we can cover elsewhere in another one of these podcasts. But we'll try not to get into too much detail of because there's a lot to say about that. So I think what you're saying is uh, force majeure is a creature of contract. So are these clauses just standard? No, if only they were, Mark. It appears to us that almost every contract, whether it's an industry standard contract or one that's been carefully drafted and negotiated, has slightly different clauses. So I would say that we have the opposite of an industry-wide force majeure system. Uh, Each needs to be looked at independently and an assessment made on those terms. There are a few different types, but there is no boilerplate standard. So Simon, getting to, to why we're all here today and why we're doing this remotely, is the current pandemic force majeure? Well, it really depends on what is in your force majeure clause. They invariably include a definition. Each contract includes its own definition. Some may define force majeure to include epidemics or pandemics and include that language expressly, in which case the answer is quite clear. The answer will be, yes, this is a force majeure event. But many don't include that language. Uh, The type of language you do see that will be relevant are things like acts of God. Uh, There's no English case law on the point yet whether COVID-19 will be considered an act of God. I can see arguments either way, so we'll see how that plays out. Uh, And then often you do see also, as well as acts of God, you often see sweeper language like other causes beyond the control of the affected party. And I think COVID-19 would fall within that kind of general sweeper. So it's still to be determined. And clauses do vary. Tony's alluded to that. The logic 
the marine construction contract that we deal with a lot is actually very narrowly defined. There's no act of God and there's no general sweeper clause. So it'd be much harder to argue in that context that this is a force majeure event. So it really does depend and you need to check. So if there is a force majeure clause in a, uh, a contract, what, what's going to be the effect? Well, there's usually no automatic effect of the event, the force majeure event, even if it's defined as a pandemic, even if it's there. It's up to the parties to take steps. And usually the affected party needs to serve a notice. Now, if it serves a valid notice, then it will usually get alleviated from the schedule and be excused from its non-performance during the force majeure event. Sometimes there might also be a right to terminate, but it does require parties to do something, typically the serving of a notice. And so what kind of circumstances might a notice not be valid? Uh, well, there's a couple of things I'd watch out for. I'll, one has to read the contract. Uh, sometimes the, the notice has to be given within a certain time frame, maybe five days, in which case you need to comply with that time frame. The other thing is the particular notice requirements of the contract. So this might not be in the force majeure clause. It might be in a separate notice clause. Uh, and that clause will say to whom notice needs to be given and how it might be given. So to give you an example, the logic contract requires the notice to be given by hand, by fax, or by first-class post to certain named individuals. So you need to have your eye on that clause, because if you just send an email to the person you're dealing with, that might not comply with the notice requirements, and that might be an invalid notice, and then you don't get the benefit of the, the schedule extension. So it, it just seems strange that the courts would not be sympathetic if the notice is out of time or sent to the wrong person or sent via the wrong medium. So are the courts not going to be sympathetic in those circumstances? I think not, because, well, they might be sympathetic, but at the end of the day, the parties have agreed a contract and how notices are to be served. There is an issue of construction, whether compliance is a strict requirement, but if you assume it is, and that uh, serving notice is a condition precedent to being entitled to the extension, then I don't think there's a lot of room for sympathy, really, from the courts to just rewrite the contract and say, well, you agree five days, but you can have 10 because of COVID-19. I think it's more likely the courts to say, you're grown up commercial entities, you agreed five days, you agreed how notices should be served, and therefore that's the deal. So I don't think there's too much room in English law for the judges just taking a broad brush approach. Tony, anything to add to what Simon has just said? Uh, yeah, the, the, if you're aware of the terms of the contract, then it's best to comply. If one hasn't followed them, then there might possibly be some arguments, but they're not ideal. We, we, we have seen uh, some developments in English contract law that says that you can possibly vary contracts through even oral discussions, but the terms need to be very clear. So if you have possibly used the same communication line, which is not the official one, throughout the course of the contract, then you could try and hook into that to say, well, I, I gave notice through this line as I've done with everything else, and, and previously it had been acknowledged as applicable, but it's not an ideal circumstance uh, to be in. You'll be fighting an uphill battle. So if one has the opportunity, it's, it's, it's best to, to comply with the notice period as much as you can. Some of these notices will, for example, moving on slightly, ask you to say how long you think the force major event is going to go on for. And I think in those circumstances, the courts are going to be more sympathetic with saying, this is how long it's affected me now, but I really don't have a specific idea of when the event or the uh, regulations or edicts or laws or penalties that have been imposed by uh, a particular place uh, will continue to apply. Because as you know, none of us 
really know how each government is going to come out of this at the moment. So in, in terms of the kind of work I do, which is, say, like a gas sales agreement, I mean, if, for example, the the field isn't producing because of maintenance, because of some other type of default, does force majeure still apply in those kind of circumstances? So, so in other words, can you still claim the force majeure even if the, the field or whatever wouldn't have produced in any other circumstance? Um, this particular issue has been looked at in uh, English law in several cases, and uh, most recently was examined in the Tullow and Cedrill case. And it must be uh, an event which is beyond uh, the notifier's control. And it must be the active cause of the delay. So if one is already suffering from delay as a result of, as you say, maintenance downtime, then that delay is not caused by the force majeure event. It becomes um, highly arguable it's not force majeure. What you would then have to establish is, for example, that the maintenance period has been changed because uh, substantially because of what's happened. So it may well be as a result of this, you can't continue maintenance, particularly because supplies aren't available or because uh, uh, you can't get the labor to the particular location. So there could be a supervening event, but it would be the party notifying to, to prove that. Simon, anything to add to that? Only that I agree with what Tony says, but it is a matter of construction of the contract. So on a rare occasion, you may find a force majeure clause that actually says when read closely that if there's a force majeure event, you get this schedule extension without having to prove the causation relationship between the two. But most of the time, you're going to have to prove that causation relationship that the force majeure event caused the delay and disruption. There is another point here, which is that there is quite a big distinction between how the English courts would view the words prevent and the words hindered. Prevent is a really tough test. You'd be seeking to prove that you simply cannot carry out the tasks set for you. Hindered is 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 a much lower threshold and it's actually a fairly soft test to comply with. So that's a, a really big fork in the walk road in any contract where you see the words and hindered in. And the notifier is in a much better position where it sees that. Although they still have to show that there's something more than a general concern as a result of what's going on, but they can specifically point to how their obligations have been affected. So just taking it back to, to why we're all here and why we're, we're sat at home today, in what circumstances can you actually claim the force majeure event starts. So given the the pandemic that we're going through at the moment, clearly we are on a curve. At what point in the curve can you say under your contract you have an FM event? I think that largely depends on what the circumstances are. We are seeing some governments introduce some extremely strict lockdown rules And you must judge that at the place that the obligation is being performed. So you could have two companies in country A and company B, but the performance is in in, country A and B, but the performance is in country C. Now, if country C's national government say all facilities are now locked down, for example, repair or maintenance yards are no longer open or supplies can't leave for this particular country, then you would probably be saying that is the point at which the force majeure event has occurred. And you would be writing to say, country C has imposed very strict rules. And that means that I am either prevented or hindered from continuing the services in a normal way. Simon, do you want to add to that? 
I mean, yeah, I think it's very fact sensitive. Ultimately, there's going to be therefore grey areas and degrees, and ultimately, the judge is going to make a call on it and take a pragmatic approach. I would suggest because on any construction project, maybe part of it's been massively disruptive, part of it's slightly disruptive, and some of it could carry on or is carrying on. And if you've got a clause that says prevented, it, it is shades of grey, and it's not going to be black and white, but. I think the court will take a pragmatic approach on it to give no remedy and not let the force majeure clause bite at all and offer any protection wouldn't seem like the right outcome. So assuming there is force majeure and assuming that valid notice has been served, etc., do you then get the right to terminate eventually? That depends on what the contract says. So often there will be a clause in there that says if it continues for X period of time, then sometimes the party who's the innocent party, if you like, sometimes they have the right to terminate. Sometimes both parties are given the right to terminate. But it's very dependent on the terms of the contract. The supply time form that we deal with a lot in offshore oil and gas, that actually has a default clause saying 14 days. Only 14 days of force majeure gives a party a right to terminate. In a big construction project, I wouldn't expect to see such a tight time frame. It all It's very fact sensitive, but what will be interesting is these clauses in some contexts will be negotiated heavily and people really put a lot of thought into them. Sometimes they might have a default clause in there that might be unexpectedly short. Tony, do you want to add to that? Where we might see some interesting issues is where a notifier serves a force measure notification and the recipient either challenges it or reserves its position seeking further information. So it says to the notifier, we don't actually consider that your explanation fits with what we think is what's required to delay and commence the force measure period running under this contract. So let's just say that's what's happened and the contract's got, say, a 60-day running force measure period. The notifier might have to think very, very carefully about serving a notice to terminate in circumstances where it knows its original force majeure notice has not been accepted. Because if they terminate in those circumstances at a later point, a court could find that they've terminated wrongfully and expose themselves to a potential claim for the losses of the recipient. Taking it back to the the world of oil and gas. So the oil and gas industry is is facing a double headwind at the moment. It's facing COVID-19. It's also facing a very low oil price. In those kind of circumstances, do you see a difference between how a party is going to use a force majeure clause in the event that oil was at 25 bucks or in the event that oil was at 100 bucks? I think that looking at previous authorities, unless there is something about the price of oil dropping built within the contract, that is not going to be used as a reason why somebody can or can't perform their obligations under it. That happened very much when we looked at the credit crunch and the cases that came out of that is the reduction, the amount of finance was not used as any excuse for not being able to perform. So the price of oil itself, I don't think, unless it's very clear under the contract, is going to be considered a force major situation. It's not legally relevant, I agree, but commercially it'd be very relevant. So if you've just entered into a contract for a massive capital project and you've with the drop in oil price that happened two weeks later, you think, I wish I'd not done that. And then you're in a force majeure situation. You may see force majeure as the way out of that contract. So people will look at the whole picture, the commercial background, everything, in deciding whether or not to exercise a right to terminate. 
And do you have the same kind of notice periods that uh, if you do want to terminate, you, you need to serve valid notice by a certain time? Your notice clause would need to comply with the terms of the contract. So the same notice clause we were talking about earlier would still be relevant. And then you'd be looking at the force majeure clause to see what it required in terms of how many days notice of termination. But the days notice of termination is kind of less critical in a way, because if you're entitled to serve notice and you serve notice, whether the contract terminates in two weeks, three weeks or something is not that relevant. You're bringing it to an end. And is there any notion of good faith when you decide whether or not to terminate? I don't think so. Not under English law. The, the courts have been very slow to imply a duty of good faith. And it's the ordinary contractual principles of, is it necessary to give business efficacy to the contract? Or is it so obvious as to be not worth saying? They're the test to imply a term into a commercial contract. And so they're kind of high hurdles to meet. So by and large, the English court's not going to be concerned about the reasons behind the termination, just whether or not there was a right to terminate and has it been validly exercised. So let's assume that we've had force majeure. Let's assume the parties haven't terminated and this this whole pandemic goes away and life returns to normality. In those kind of circumstances, are we... Are we playing catch up? Or do you have to then deliver what you didn't deliver during the period of force majeure? No, uh, because you're entitled to your schedule extension. If you've served your notice validly, you'd be entitled to the extra period of delay, maybe a month, maybe three months, however it was. So you'd still be obliged to complete the contract, but by the extended schedule delivery date. That would be the normal position. What I think is also interesting, though, is the parties may commercially agree to try and catch up but the contractors will be looking for extra remuneration for that and there'll be kind of maybe a variation order or addendum to the contract to revise the new scheduled delivery dates. Thanks. Finally, just practical steps. So I'm sat here, everyone's at home, you receive an email at home, your counterpart you should claim force majeure. But what kind of practical steps should you be looking to do? Tony? Uh, Mark, well, the, the starting point will be to get your contract out and look very carefully at what they're required to do. And once you have got an objective view on that is to then look very carefully at the notice that they've served to make sure that they've fully complied with it. And they provided you with sufficient detail. In the past, frequently, I've seen some very fuzzy, badly drafted force majeure notices that go nowhere close to complying with the amount of information that the uh, recipient should be receiving. And if that is the case, then the recipient needs to think very carefully about whether it wishes to accept that or send back a notice saying it doesn't consider it to be a valid force majeure notice. And again, much will depend on what's happening on the project on the ground and also what the consequences of that notice might be, in particular, if the recipient's looking at a clause which allows either party to terminate after a a particular period of time, they want to think very carefully about whether that period is now running against them. Just a final point to add to that. Obviously, the contract is not existing in isolation. There's often a chain of contracts or a web of contracts. So in deciding what to do in relation to any contract, you really need to have an eye on the other related contracts and how you're going to manage it up the line or down the line to try and make sure your position is consistent. Good. That's a useful point to end on. Um, Simon, Tony, thank you both very much. Thank you. I hope you both stay safe.